Welcome to Into Theology. I am joined by the Reverend Dr. Ian Hugh Clary, <sighs> and we are about to look at book three of Augustine's Confessions. I almost said Calvin's Institutes. I think it was just <laughs> uh, maybe close to the tip of my tongue. The Our old, old friend Calvin. I feel bad. I miss him. <laughs> um, so we finished book one and two. He's kind of an adolescent still. I think here he's like 16 to 18 kind of range although it's not always perfectly according to time well no he says it right oh no i'm sorry yeah you're right i had book four open so book four he's 19 so yeah you're probably right well he calls himself 18 in this chapter um and i believe he comes to carthage in 370 which means he's 16 when he okay. so it's that time period where he's like kind of coming into him uh, as, as a full adult type of thing yeah and there's a ton of stuff in this chapter about law love pain pleasure the problem of evil the nature of god higher lower things like it's like a chapter that seems to be about everything yeah um but uh maybe the organizing idea would be augustine learns to move through sensible things which are good to the things of god which are a little bit beyond or above or, or of a different order than those things which is going to make his soul come into like better, better condition as he's getting closer to um, that unity who is right. God, who is the good. And I think you're going to, you were going to read the first, um, I don't know what you call it. Section one, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whole section book one three, of book one. three here. Cause there's, yeah. he opens it up with a bang. I say, yeah. Now should I read it in the pine coffin or should I read it in the lobe? I think you should follow your heart. Just don't read it in Latin. Okay. <laughs> Weni Carthaginen. <laughs> oh boy. There we go. Okay, I'll read it in the lobe because uh, that's what I just most recently read it in. And I, just I have to say though, Weni versus Veni. Weni sounds lame. Veni sounds way better. I know, I know. You got to pronounce it bad because it sounds way better. That was it, Veni yeah. Vidi Vici or whatever. Yeah, Veni <laughs> it's Vici. way better. Came, I saw, I conquered. Okay. Witty Witchy. Sorry. <laughs> it does have that kind of there's that automatopoeia sort of like it yeah. is kind of weeny whiny kind of sound. Yeah, let's let's keep the B. Let's I'm gonna keep the bad pronunciation because I like it better. Well no, we're just doing the more ecclesiastical. This is more classic. Because we're more pious. That's right. There you go. All right. So book three, uh just starting right off the off the top there, and I'll read those two these two uh paragraphs. So uh, I came to Carthage and all around me a melting pot of illicit passions was seething. That's where Pine Coffin uh, translated as a Carthage was a hissing cauldron of lust. <laughs> uh, he says, I was not yet in love, but I was in love with the idea of love. And because of the neediness, I felt deep down, I hated the thought of not being needy enough. I was looking for something to love, loving to love. And I hated the safety of a course free from pitfalls. Within myself, I was hungry from the lack of inner food. You yourself, my God. But that hunger did not make me want to feast. Rather, I had no desire at all for the incorruptible food. This was not because I was already full of such food. Instead, the more empty I was, the more I disdained it. So my soul was in a poor state of health and covered in sores that lay prostrate out of doors in a pitiable state, itching to be scratched through the sensual touch of physical things. Yet had those, not, those things not possessed a soul, they would definitely not be lovable. I enjoyed loving and being loved. And even more so if I got to enjoy the body of my lover. So I used to defile the stream of friendship with the filth of sensual desire and to overshadow its brightness with my fiendish lust. Disgraceful and dishonorable as I was, my overweening vanity made me long to appear refined and civilized. So I rushed into love, wanting love to take me prisoner, 
my God, my mercy, how good you were, sprinkling that sweet gratification of, gratification of mine with so much bitterness. For I was loved, and I secretly attained a bond of pleasure, and I was happy to be constrained by burdens and bonds, with the result that I was being beaten with glowing iron rods of jealousy, mistrust, anxiety, rages, and quarreling. Um, there's one thing I want to mention, because he actually gets this in the chapter, I just, and I just noticed it now. In my translation, it says, the emptier I was, the more unappetizing such food became. Yeah. And one thing, because he's going to get it, is that evil is non-being, essentially. That's what he's And so he's, he's, he's mentioned, like, and I think this is actually really practical. I think we can all understand this. It's like, often when you fall into patterns of sin or evil, um, the more you do it, the more you kind of desire it, and the less good, less, like, so you're, you're, like, say you're deep into pornography or something you just don't feel like praying, yeah. right? Like there's, there's something to it that the more you get into dissolution the, and the more empty you are, because the more you need the, the bigger, the high you need, the, the better, the drug, the better, the addiction, whatever it is. And the less willing you are to pursue the good, even though it is good. And actually, I think this is a really helpful way to just like to understand how the Bible talks about sin too, because there's so many people in the Bible and so many descriptions of just how people pursue sin and basically annihilate themselves with sin. And it seems so irrational until you live past the age of 30, then you realize half your friends did, did too. And you might have, um, unless God intervened. And so I, I actually think, although it sounds a bit abstract when we get to it, like evil is non-being the privation of the good. It's so utterly common sense when you start thinking about it. Yeah. Because he, he ra- nothing. He, well, he rounds back to food. And uh, that's, that's later in uh, number six, I guess, uh, in book three. And it's funny because I did a course on Augustine with, with Michael Haken in seminary years ago. And so the Pine Coffin edition was the text that we used. And it's, hmm. it's, inter- it's interesting to read my old notes on it. Oh, interesting. Uh, because, yeah, look what I have right here. Uh, it says, because he's talking about it, that same, oh, it's right here, that same, uh, same issue. And I think Dr. Haken might have said this in his lecture because I put in the marginalia like a Big Mac <laughs> with an exclamation point because that's kind of how it is, right? It's like, oh, because it's bad for you. It's like not yeah, real it's bad for you, right? But it's, it's like it's feeding you. you. You get this craving for it. You want to eat it, you eat it, and you feel like garbage afterwards. And then you go do it again, you know? And mm. uh, it's, it's that, same sort of, that same sort of notion. And like he says, like back to my own... Um, uh, the, the lobe one here, he says, so my soul was in a poor state of health, right? So his soul has got this, this and he's not, cause he's not eating the he's eating chocolate food. bars all day. Yeah, he's eating Big Macs sin. and fake Chinese food or something like it that. It doesn't you know? nourish your soul. It actually besickens you. Yeah. And makes you worse and makes you further away from the good and all that, that you were just saying. Right. Then he, but it's interesting. So during this time, he, but he's substituting it all with lust. He's looking for right. real love, which is God and friendship and and genuine love should be pointing to him to that mm. and it's not it's just tearing him away into what he calls fiendish lust he also so he kind of reads already at the beginning this sort of meta theory of the problem of evil he reads it into his practical experience he actually does that too i think with his discovery of cicero because in this first page um he talks about going to the games and there's like this pleasure and pain binary and people take joy in experiencing pain well, that's kind of like a stoic doctrine, the day of pleasure and pain as being these binaries. Not that it's not unbiblical entirely. I mean, the Bible has similar language. It's just, it's particularly stoic in how it's expressed. And in this chapter, he finds Cicero, he, he reads Hortensius, which I don't think exists. Like, I don't think, I mean, no. it exists, but it's not 
extension. We only have it in quotes from him, really. Yeah. yeah. And it's actually where he kind of begins to figure out maybe pleasure and pain. But he also begins to enter into philosophy, the love of wisdom, and begins to think about um, knowing God in ways that go beyond the body. And it's because he mentions that he got into the Manichaean, you might call it a cult. Oh, it's a cult. And the Manichaeans made fun of the Bible and said things like, oh, you're made in God's image. Okay, well, does God have veins? Does he have a nose, mustache? And Augustine sort of went along with it. But he came to realize, I think, through pursuit of philosophy, he mentions it, that no, that's not how God can be. Um, eventually, he quotes Jesus's words, God is spirit from John 424. And this, by the way, is not abstract doctrine again. He finds it immensely practical because he's trying to find fulfillment or satisfaction through pursuing lust and sin, when really everything that he needs to be satisfied is accessible through his inward turn or through his soul's ascent to God. He even uses a language like a ladder. Uh, he talks about being, he's, he's pursuing earthly things, but he needs to pursue like heavenly things. It's actually really powerful stuff. So uh, on page 39 or um, section four in the second paragraph, he says, after talking about Hortensius, my God, how I burned, how I burned with longing to leave earthly things and fly back to you. Um, so he's turning this sort of earthly lust into a sort of divine eros. Yeah. Sort of uh, now, actually, it might not be because remember, fire by its material, like by its by its observational sense, goes into the air. So he may not actually mean it in the modern sense as I'm as I'm speaking. But nonetheless, the fire burns and it goes higher and higher, and so he's ascending to God. Okay, Johnny Cash. <laughs> burns. Ring of fire. There you but, go. I mean, th think about all that, right? Like the uh, the way that this this. The, the you know the spatio-temporal world is really like drawing him away from these things right so like it, you mm. know he's got the he's at the physical notion of god uh that's that's a spatio-temporal notion of god that he's looking for his ultimate fulfillment it's a god of his own creation or the manichaean creation um but you take it even back to like there's the there's the lust issue <clears throat> where that's all very physical whereas the true love that it should be pointing to is going to be found in god <clears throat> the uh, the theater thing is interesting Ma matthew levering i was reading him on this and uh he made the the interesting observation too that like here's here's augustine who is stealing pears for no reason and having absolutely no pity they're laughing uh you know even though they stole somebody else's property and uh, he has no pity for the people that he's abusing these the women that he's sleeping with especially then he's got the concubine that he'll he'll eventually have a child with um but why is it that he can then go to a theater and he's completely like drawn in and he's filled with pity and he's filled with like all these emotions that the theater is giving to him and he can find it there in something that's fake uh, but the things that are real right are just continuously like drawing him away and so it's like this weird like it is that disordering of the soul that he's dealing with right and so uh that the cl the closer he gets to that uh, going up that ladder the more that that spatio-temporal stuff's not going to be ultimate, and then the more that they're going to be put in their right order. Can I make um, a really practical observation about that? Yep. yep. Sometimes the people closest to us were we more easily abused than those mm -hmm. further from us. In mm -hmm. other words, there might be a great man or woman who 
is into, I don't know, describes movies or music powerfully or is in politics, but at home, they're cruel to their spouse or kids. Yeah. It's almost like what's being described, how you described with the theaters. You go to the theater and you're fused if you cry, you, you sympathize and have compassion for the characters. But then for those closest to you, you don't treat them well. Yeah. There's That's a, there's a, a like, disconnect. The, the great example of that is um, Dickens, right? So Dickens writes these like, you know, incredibly powerful and moving stories about the plight of kids in the industrial revolution in England. And yet he was horrible to his own kids. I didn't know and that. Like, yeah. And you're like, how could that, like, it, it's always so weird, but he was Scrooge, huh? He, he kind of, you know, he was just, yeah, he was like despicable to his wife, all this kind of stuff. And yet writes with such power and pathos because exactly, I think what you're saying. There, well, right? it reminds me too of like, there's another, Augustinian who lived a little bit later named John Kelvin <laughs> and he, he talks about like the arts as being um it's by God's spirit but you always notice that even people who have excellent skill in art are still sinful and maybe Dickens is in this sense empowered by God's spirit for this art but yeah. then he's so totally depraved that he kind of ruins it so okay he pursues wisdom itself he, he's beginning to move and see that if he finds pleasure in move. in earthly things that's unsatisfying so he needs to find a way to, to find pleasure in something that's stable and eternal and that thing is going to be god so he has this really cool sentence um yeah um, so it's on page 42 in the oxford edition but that's actually section uh four six section six okay yeah right near the end of it actually or the middle to the end and he quotes second corinthians eleven ten at the top of it of the paragraph i'm going to read so it says, but you, my love, for whom I faint, that I may receive strength. You are not the bodies which we see, though they be up in heaven, nor even any object up there lying beyond our sight. For you have made these bodies, and you do not even hold them to be among the greatest of your creatures. How far removed you are from these fantasies of mine, fantasies of physical entities which have no existence. We have more reliable knowledge in our images of bodies, which really exist, and the bodies are more certain than the images. But you are no body, nor are you soul, which is the life of bodies. For the life of bodies is superior to bodies themselves and a more certain object of knowledge. But you are the life of souls, the life of lives. You live in dependence only, only on yourself, and you never change, life of my soul. That's an interesting paragraph to me for so many reasons. One, it's about like epistemology and perception. It's uh, all kinds of stuff. Two, it's about the nature of God. He's not, he's neither a soul nor a body, but something else. And two, like the certainty of knowledge from bodies to soul, which is more certain, which is interesting mm -hmm. into the knowledge of God. I think soul is more certain. It's the power of life, but it also gives you those basic principles of like one plus one equals two and so on. Um, God's not in the, he's not dependent on anything else. So he's there's the doctrine of Asadi right there. He never changes, so he's immutable. Yeah. Um, it, it's just it, it, so he's, he's also spirit, of course, and nobody. And you can imply simplicity from this a little bit, at least. So he ends up kind of discovering and there's that he cre creator creature distinction too. You creator creature distinction. Do not consider them Good. your greatest creations. Yep. There's just so much there that he, in contrast with the Manichae myths, which he's kind of he's not making fun of but he's kind of making fun of himself almost like he's yeah. like oh i actually believe some of these uh, lower <laughs> on the page um 
And he's like, he kind of is embarrassed by it, but he did. He believed in these weird things like spirit fruit and yeah. all sorts of stuff. And even their criticism of the Bible. And then he goes, I, I find that. So if you go to the first sentence of section seven, he goes even deeper. So he's, he must be reading either he got this from Cicero or what he's doing is he's using what he learned later and then imputing it back to give words to what he was feeling. Because he says, I was unaware of the existence of another reality, that which truly is. And it was as some sharp intelligence were persuading me to consent to the stupid deceivers when they asked me, where does evil come from? And so on. So what's the other reality? Well, that's the intelligibles. It's the it's Plato's cave, right? Now yeah. he would say it's 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 God. <laughs> you know, it's not he's not a Platonist in the most direct sense, but he would think it's God and all the things of God. In fact, I don't know if it's in this book, but uh, but Augustine affirms that in God are the forms, justice, truth, love, and so on. They're not just out there somewhere, but they're the deepest reality. And you access them through your soul, the life of your body. And then he gets into the problem of evil and he solves it here. And so he says, evil has no existence except as a privation of good. And he's saying this in contrast to the Manichees, who you love. Hey, you remember uh, VeggieTales, <laughs> by the way? Barbara I do Manatee. remember VeggieTales. Well, all I can ever, whenever I hear Manichee, I think of like Barbara Manichee. So it's like the Manichees, they are the one for me. <laughs> but then think, they're also, they are living fruit that are Christians. So they got this like spark of the divine in them. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. That's all. Whenever I hear the Manichees, that's what I think of. I think it's now for the rest of my life whenever I hear about about uh, Veggie Tales. That's the first thing I'm gonna think of now. I know that's so funny. He never realized. And he quotes John four twenty. He didn't realize that God was spirit. Quotes John four twenty four. So, I think it's just fascinating. And now some people might hear this and think, okay, well, Augustine is just a Platonist. He doesn't like the body, which is totally false. No. <laughs> it's amazing how uh, throughout the whole book, creation language is just rife right through it. You know, you just see it over and over again. And it's both both as it's wanting to put it in its right place, really. He talks about the Manichees, how they, they made him kind of look at the earthly things. But he says they're beautiful because God made them beautiful. Yeah. And when Augustine uses the word beautiful, it's not like us. It's like it attracts you, it draws you to God who is beauty. And so yeah, beauty is like a transcendental. It's like a uh, transcendental, in the ancient, yeah. In the ancient world, yeah. Truth, goodness, and beauty, right? He actually calls God like a, my beauty or something in this, in this uh, somewhere in here anyways. So, no, it's not that he's against the body or against created things. It's just that he understands that we're the union of body and soul and that to, to know God, we have to know him with what makes sense to know him. So yeah. we see created signs with our eyes and therefore you can use them. He uses them all at illustrations, all the things. But truthfully, like prayer, for example, is through your spirit, through your mind, your noose. Yeah, I mean, man, there's a lot to say about all that, what you just said. Um, it's interesting, his his notion of, of the privation of the good, um, right? So he says, for I did not know that evil does not exist, except as the privation of the good uh, to the point of complete non-existence. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that's so helpful, I think, and so important when you get a lot of times you'll get people saying to you, like, how is it that, like, what is evil? You don't want to deny that it's a thing in the sense that like, I don't want to be a monist and say that good and evil are just illusions because everything is one. No. Um, <clears throat> but I don't want to say that it's a thing in that it's some sort of a created substance because that would then mean God is the author of evil. And so here, and he's drawing really from Plotinus, 
the idea that uh, that <laughs> evil is actually just the absence of the good. So it's back to what we're saying is like you're further away from the good, and then that creates more and more division multiplicity which then creates chaos and that happens here but it also happens within the soul and so the you know i i was actually talking to my son about this because in his uh, classical school they're talking about prob the problem of evil we're talking about this last night actually and i said the the privation of the good is like if you think about a room where you turn the light on and you turn it off when the light's on you actually light is a thing like it's actually a created substance it's either a particle or a wave uh, but when you, which one is off, it? Give the answer. We is don't it a know. particle or a wave? Ask Einstein. Um, so, uh, we know it's both, but anyway, that's not the point. Um, but it's a creative thing. Uh, whereas when you turn the light off, there's just an absence of that light, that, that, that substance. And so it's dark and that's and that like, and likewise creates a kind of, which is a good analogy to what he's tried earlier. It's like the more you sin, the less the more unsatisfied you are it's like this yeah the, but you're, the more you're groping the more that it's like it's it's a chaos because it's dark so hence again the, the then there's biblical imagery to that when like you get the depiction of god as pure light and how sin is darkness right and the so, absence of what the god the presence right. of god so it makes total sense both philosophically and theologically biblically. and biblically right well, even just like, oh genesis one thirty one. everything god created was very good yeah. so God didn't create evil. It's just not possible. Right. In the sense of, uh, of a created entity. Now, yeah. I think it's okay. You can say evil exists as a, a sort of a mode of privation or something. You want to be like technical about it because sure. if you, if you make it sound like evil doesn't exist in the sense of like uh, just some sort of like mystical union, it doesn't quite make sense because people experience real evil, but that experience is that darkness. It's that twisted perversion, corruption of the good. I also think, I mean, just by implication, this tells you also why, I think hell is so scary, in my opinion, because people talk about hell being like the absence of God's presence or all these kinds of things. Can't be that. He's omnipresent. <laughs> yeah, it can't be. Well, presence in the sense of maybe in, in, the, in the biblical yeah, idiom yeah. of like the presence of God's goodness. I think yeah, maybe exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I actually think hell, way. I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which hell has to be like this, this pursuit of like complete unsatisfaction over and over. Like there's no good, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. You're walking down a dark tunnel. It just doesn't end. I mean, I'm not being literal, of course. Right? I'm just kind of giving metaphors. So it's like there's this never-ending, no hope, completely unsatisfied, it's turning fair. against yourself over and over and over again with no end. And it's something that you would have chosen throughout yeah. your life because you didn't want that goodness. Because, again, earlier, the more and more you sin, the more you annihilate yourself, the less, like, the more you look at porn, the less you want to pray, like, that kind of principle. It's so hey. practical. Everyone sees it. We all know hey. it. I mean, think about it. It's in pop culture, right? Like that. I don't know if you remember that episode of episode of The Simpsons, where Homer Simpson goes to hell, and then like uh, I just read the it, Bible. I don't watch secular <laughs> media. I'm sorry. A, remember, like he's he's getting fatter and fatter, and they just keep oh, the donut machine. Yeah, I just remember throwing the donuts down his throat. And like, more, <laughs> but actually, own, the episode more, he more, eats, more, actually... and then he eats hell out of all of his donuts. But that must have brought him some level of despair because he couldn't finish <laughs> the it. He was all never right. We saved the metaphor. We saved the <laughs> I think of, um, I can't remember the, like, you know, the song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, even like yeah, the, the all that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. like um, th there's so much to it. And I actually think it's a, it's, a, it's good because it gives you, because the Bible is like, it says so much about the afterlife, uh, about heaven in particular, a little, only a little about hell, but it's always bad. But I think if you understand the nature of sin, it gives some clarity of how, bad it is it gives yep. you some words to describe it. and i think 
we don't want, I don't like to say more than the Bible says explicitly, but I think it gives you at least some words to describe how sin is and what hell must be like, because that's where sin will be. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, what other things? So, I mean, good grief. There's so much stuff. Like, like, there's something, um, I, like maybe, five, five, can I just read like five yeah, for a second? I'm going to do it in the uh, pine coffin. He said, so I made up my mind to examine the Holy scriptures and see what kind of books they were. I discovered something that was at once beyond the understanding of the proud and hidden from the eyes of children. Its gate was humble, but the heights it reached were sublime. I was enfolded in mysteries and I was not the kind of man to enter into it or bow my head to follow where it led. But these were not the feelings I had when I first read the scriptures. To me, they seemed quite unworthy of comparison with the stately prose of Cicero because I had too much conceit, right? Too much conceit to accept their simplicity and not enough insight to penetrate their depths. It is surely true that as the child grows, these books grow with him. But I was too proud to call myself a child. I was inflated with self-esteem, which made me think myself a great man. Wow. Like, talk about what a, like, approach the Bible with humility, you know? And that you know, it grows up with you. Yeah. I'm, uh, like that. I love that paragraph um, with what he's saying. Because like, I can remember you know, in my own experience back in, back in the day in high school, me and all my friends were a bunch of burnouts, you know, smoking dope, drinking all the time, like drinking in the, you know, bathroom at school. We were like a, a walking, talking Aerosmith song or something. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, smoking in the board, you know, anyway. Um, and I, and I remember at one point we're all like, oh gosh, man, if we keep going this way, we're going to have a wreck of a life. This is stupid. Uh, let's try to clean ourselves up. And I had like this huge, we weren't Roman Catholic. We had this massive Catholic Bible. My mom's friend gave us. So we're all sitting in my living room and we like crack this thing open. We start to read it. And we're like, the heck is this about? <laughs> it just made no sense whatsoever. You know, so-and-so begat so-and-so or something. I was just like, we just didn't get it. We just closed it and went and smoked a joint, I'm sure. But like, uh, but then you approach it with like this new sense, right? That can only be given by God's grace and by the spirit. And then you go and you read the Bible as a, as a believer with that kind of attitude. And then it becomes everything for you. And, uh, and you, and you, it, like you say, it grows with you so that it, you never really will penetrate its depths mm. because you just get more and more insight, but it's like this reciprocal relation because you receive it from the book that then you pour back into your reading of it, which then you receive more. So it's like, wow, what a cool, what a cool description. Three really quick things. So one, I believe it's Athanasius, but really the fathers in general say you have to read the Bible and understand that you have to be holy and pious and humble. So your, your own ethics, your own transformation is, is almost prior to understand the Bible. So it's not an intellectual thing first. It's actually a moral thing first and then intellectual. Yep. Uh, second, um, John Piper says something helpful. It's similar. God is love and therefore the Bible is easy to understand for, for everyone, but God is holy and therefore it's infinitely deep. Now that might just be cheesy, but it's helpful to me. But it's true. Yeah. The other thing, the last is really important is that virtually, um, so Gregor of Nyssa, for example, says that God gives us puzzles in scripture so that you can grow with it. So it doesn't make everything simple for you because if it were simple, you'd be bored. Yeah. And so there's things that are in scripture that are simple and things that are hard. So I don't know, predestination might be hard, but it's in order to um, draw you along in the whole journey. Because if everything was simple, uh, then you get bored pretty fast. Like yeah. just the way humans work. And I don't mean bored because the Bible is boring because God's infinitely interesting. That's, that's the point. <laughs> he yeah. made us yeah, with the capacity to be infinitely interested in him. And therefore right. the Bible has a reflection of that. It's not because God's trying to trick us because that's who he is. And so a lot of people say you got to keep it simple all the time, but actually that's not what God wants you to do. He wants you to go deeper if, if you can. So I so think that's important. Here, I'm going to switch topics here. 
I'm going to ask you a very loaded question. Okay, so end of number nine, I'll read it in the pine coffin. Uh, so does this does this make Augustine a theonomist? But when you suddenly command us to do something strange and unforeseen, even if you'd previously forbidden it, none can doubt that the command must be obeyed, even though for the time being you may conceal the reason for it, and it may conflict with the established rule of custom in some forms of society. For no society is right and good unless it obeys you. But happier they who know that the commandment was yours for all your servants do is done as an example of what is needed for the present or as a sign for what is yet to come. So he's going on this long discussion about law, right? And societies having to obey God's law. So the answer is everyone's a theonomist because everyone has to obey the law of God. Theonomists just took the term but are incompetent users of it. Augustine's a competent user of it. And he's already said earlier that I also know that inward justice, which judges not by custom, but by the most righteous law of Almighty God. And this law uh, is adapted. There's an idea of positive law can be modified throughout time. He talks about positive law throughout here and how there's there's reasons for that, but it's based on God's eternal law. He also says, I can't remember where, but it's inscribed upon our reason. Um, Because I didn't think you were going to ask me this. I don't remember the actual line, but he talks about (laughs) like basically being written on our hearts as this eternal law. I don't know if it's in this chapter. And so for Augustine, the, and he also defines the law of God as God's nature. And so God's eternal law is God himself, his perpetual character. And so Augustine knows about positive law, namely laws that people create on the basis of this law that you can discern in nature. And those are fine and they can be changeable, but they're all rooted in this unchanging law of God, which is his nature. And even in the text you read, Augustine says God might conceal his reason, but there is a reason. And therefore God's uh, law is always reasonable. It's not voluntaristic. It just happens. There's a reason for it. It's rooted in God being love, justice, and holiness. And therefore, I think sometimes people who talk about theonomy are so wrapped up into the idea it's right because God wills it that they completely miss the point. Namely, it's about knowing who God is and reflecting his character. And as Vermeule says, the more you image God, the more you like him, the happier you are because happier happiness is objective. Yeah. So, no, everyone's a theonomist. You should be a theonomist because the law of God is the ultimate standard. You just have to be competent. Yeah, yeah. You have to be a, maybe a small T theonomist. He also sounds a lot like Kierkegaard here too, right? Like the idea, you know, just to reread it. When you suddenly command us to do something strange and unforeseen, even if you had previously forbidden it, none can doubt that the command must be obeyed, which is Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac, right? Which is what Kierkegaard is going to pick up on in Fear and Trembling. And so the idea is like, I got to follow God, uh, even when things don't always seem too obvious to me as why I should be doing such and such. Um, let's, I've got to go here in a second. So let's, let's fall, fall. Uh, he ends with finish. a dream. Yeah. And Monica like a priest. Yeah. And, uh, and so the whole idea of like, he's going to get through like the silliness of the manichees, right? Uh, they're not able to answer his problem of evil as we'll see. Uh, he, they have like weird views as we noted, you know, eating fruit that that's going to, this cosmic battle between like a phys- phys- <laughs> this physical God who has a body uh, who's not then ultimate. Uh, and that means that there's evil, which is material as well, but like is ultimate. And, uh, and so then um, there's this conflict, the, the bits of the divine are, are scattered throughout that you have to, it gets, it gets uh, uh, caught in, in, fruits and especially like things like melons and so you have to eat it and then you digest that food and then belch the divinity back (laughs) out into the ether right that's what that's what it is right so strange and so monica through the whole time you start you start to see her coming more to her own she's had like these issues with things ambitions and all that kind of stuff and now she's like starting to care more for his soul right so at the beginning of 11 uh you 
but you sent down uh, your help from above and rescued my soul from the depths of darkness because my mother, your faithful servant, wept to you for me. And then uh, next paragraph, for, or next sentence, for in her faith and in the spirit which she had from you, she looked on me as dead. Uh, and then uh, a little bit further down, you heard her. For how else can I explain the dream uh, with which you consoled her so that she agreed to live with me and eat at the same table in our home? Lately, she had refused to do this because she was loathed and shunned, uh, because she loathed and shunned the blasphemy of my false beliefs. And then he talks about her dream uh, where she is able to kind of get rid of that animosity that she has for him based on her grief. And so God uses this dream. It's very interesting because they'll have another, they'll have a religious experience together uh, on, the, right, on the ocean, right? Or the sea. Right before she dies, right? Uh, in Can Ostia. I, oh, go ahead. Next to the point, what you're saying, though, it's like, remember, he's moving from earthly to heavenly things. And it's right. this dream, this vision from God in the, to the mind that is really the key way to end. And then also a prophetic word from a, from a priest, yeah. or at least a word that Monica took prophetically. But what's interesting about it uh, as a kind of like background issue is that... Uh, the only people that are supposed to have visions and dreams and religious experiences were the philosophers. Uh, mm. And so, uh, especially when you get to the Ostia one uh, near the end of her life, they have this experience together. Women aren't supposed to have it. And she's not an educated woman either. Right. And they have it together. And then he, she, he makes her, I can't remember if it's in the Kasikiakum dialogue. She's a dialogue. No, she, yeah, For sure. She's in it. Yeah. I don't and remember. So, I think in all of them or some of them. Yeah. So and he like, gets surprised whoa. by her wisdom. Before. Yeah. So, so she so, becomes a philosopher. Just a quick history. So right before he's baptized, he uh, is a catechumen. He goes away and tries to do philosophy and think about Christianity. And his mom helps him with some friends. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. 386, what, I think. Yeah. And what's interesting too, is that he, uh, he's a catechumen from birth, right? Like from a young man, he's, okay. he's always a catech catechumen. But, but he's but committed he becomes, to baptism at this point, right? Isn't that the difference? Well, then he becomes a real one, right? Like, okay. so oh, he's, okay. he is as a kid, he's, he's always in the state of being a catechumen. It's why he knows the Bible, even though he hates it. Uh, remember, he was supposed to take baptism because he was sick when he was a kid. And he could do that because he'd been a catechumen. Mm -hmm. But then he becomes like a real one uh, after he gets to Milan. So anyway. And that's why Augustine is a Baptist. Anyways. <laughs> Landmarkism. Perfect. <laughs> All right. See you next week. See ya.